0: Morning, church. If you have a copy of God's word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 12 through verse 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 this morning. Sort of a fallacy floating around in Christian circles that says uh, the greater the intimacy that you have with God the Father, the more immunity that you would have from the temptation of the enemy. So the the greater intimacy you have with God the Father in worship, in the study of His Word, the greater immunity that you would have from the ploys of Satan. And it's just not true. Now, temptation comes in a variety of different forms, and so we certainly are not always facing every temptation that could come our way. There are seasons of temptation for each and every believer. Sometimes gluttony is not something that you're tempted by, but it very well may be that you are tempted by gossip. It very well may not be pride, but rather prejudice. It very well might not be a host of of sins that we could uh, elucidate here, elucidate here, but ultimately we are reminded that to be a follower of Jesus is to face the enemy to face the the temptation of the enemy of God, Satan himself. And Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, we get not uh, 12 verses into Mark's gospel before we see this this pinnacle moment in Jesus' life where he faces the tempter himself, Satan. I I want you to see this morning that you have a way to respond to the chief conflict of the kingdom that you have a way to, to face the, the chief conflict that occurs in any follower of Jesus' life. The chief conflict of the kingdom is, is given to us here in these two verses in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him who is him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted there by Satan. He was with the wild animals. Mark says, and the angels were ministering to him. This comes on the heels of Jesus' baptism. He's still wet behind his ears with the Jordan River water where the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness to be tested, tempted. I use that not uh, unintentionally. To to be tempted has, at the heartbeat of it, a test to see what is there, to, to prove what is there, oftentimes through hardship and adversity, there's much about mark's gospel here that is that is brief it's just two verses you know that in what scholars call the synoptic gospels which is matthew's gospel and mark's gospel and luke's gospel that this is one of the accounts that all three gospels share mark gives it two verses matthew gives us 11 verses luke gives us 12 verses Mark is brief. Uh, He's always using the word, and you see it right there in verse 12 the Spirit immediately. Mark's in a hurry. He's a screenplay writer, he's not a novel writer. He is one that is moving us from scene to scene. Mark's gospel gives us these two verses. Now, Luke and Matthew need to help us understand. The whole uh, fleshing out of what occurred there. there. There are three temptations that Satan gives to Jesus that Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel tell us about. He's hungry. Turn these stones into bread. Jump down from the temple. The angels will capture you and catch you. Go up to this high place, look over the earthly kingdom. All of it, Satan says, will be yours if you just bow down and worship me. Matthew and Luke give us that. Matthew and Luke give us also the scriptural rebuttals. Each of the temptations is followed by Jesus responding with God's word, resisting the ploys of the enemy, of the accuser. Mark's gospel doesn't give us that, but it gives us much much that we need to pause and to ponder here mark tells us the location which was the wilderness tells us the duration which was 40 days he tells us the cast of characters here we have the accuser the enemy satan himself we have the help we have those that are on the side of the protagonist jesus himself here the spirit of god that leads him in the wilderness and and there's nothing that that notes that he leaves him the spirit In the wilderness. So the spirit is there. Angelic messengers are there. The cast of characters is outlined before us. Now, the location, the duration should signal to us that this is not a new story. It's an echoing of an Old Testament story. Where have we seen God's people led into the wilderness? Well, we we know this is that grand story of God bringing, bringing his people out of Egyptian captivity through their own baptism through the Red Sea, parting it with Moses' staff, and immediately God's people go into the wilderness and they fail the test. They don't like the menu of manna from heaven. They, they, they say, boy, can we go back to Egypt? you remember the buffet that we had, all the food that we had? There's grumbling in the wilderness. So they, for 40 years, wonder in the wilderness so will the son of god fell the test this wilderness temptation is proving to us the very character of jesus will jesus like the israelites before him fell the test will he use his privilege and his position for himself or will jesus be faithful to the plan of god the father this is the test of the wilderness now the wilderness this location is, is a place that signifies for us. It signifies for us horror. It signifies for us danger. It signifies for us this uh, place where he is completely exposed. One detail that Mark gives us that sort of stands out is that Jesus was in the wilderness with what? Do you see that? With the wild animals. Animals are household pets to us. Dog is a member of the family. Your cat is a member of a family. You, you probably like your dog more than you like your spouse. I mean, they, they, we, 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 we love our animals. Now, we can't even begin to understand how different animals were seen 2,000 years ago. We can't even begin to see the original listeners and hearers of, of Mark's gospel how it very well may be that Mark is slipping in a place of hope for persecuted Christians that were hearing this gospel. Many of you know that Mark's gospel comes at a time where persecuted Christians would have received it. In Rome, there was a great fire. In Rome, that fire destroyed two-thirds of Rome. Nero is looking for some scapegoat, someone to blame for the fire. He blames the Christians. They had nothing to do with it. One way that Nero persecutes Christians is draping them in animal skins and giving them, sending them out into the wilderness to be ravaged by animals for people to be able to watch and mock in entertainment. So it very well may be that Jesus being in the wilderness with the animals is is a way for Mark to say, for those of you that are facing exposure to the elements, or for those of you who are facing the horror of persecution, so your Savior has to. You're not alone. And we know Jesus wasn't alone. He wasn't alone in the wilderness. The wild animals were there. He was vulnerable. He was exposed in the wilderness, but he wasn't alone. The enemy shows up. The enemy is an enemy that is not vague, but specific. Is evil personified in this name, Satan, that means literally adversary. It means enemy. Now, they're not well-pitted enemies. It isn't that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have their equal in Satan. Of course not. No. Satan is not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. He's not omniscient, he's not all-knowing, but he is an enemy, thus the same. The great race of Jesus' ministry starts with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit at his baptism. The Spirit descends, the Father speaks. Well, of course it gets the attention of the enemy. 13 verses into Mark chapter 1, and there Satan shows up to thwart the plan of God, to subvert the plan of God in and through Jesus. He is saying, can I get to the Son of God, and I wonder if I can tempt him off the beaten path of God, the Father's plan for his life. Now, in the 21st century, we don't have much of a stomach. For all this talk about Satan. Mark's going to help us with this because Mark is not hesitant to name Satan. 13 verses, we get to Satan, the adversary, the enemy. The first miracle of Mark's gospel is the exorcism of a demon-possessed man in the synagogue in Capernaum. So Satan and his henchmen, Demons show up in Mark chapter 1. Maybe you come from a family like I came from, and we would gather together at the holidays, and my grandmother would always steer the conversation back to a certain topic. We We would go off course. We'd go off course into politics. We would go off course into religion. My grandmother, I can remember she's with the Lord now, but she would say, can't we just talk about something that everybody agrees is more pleasant? And all this talk about Satan all this talk about demonic activity, can't we just agree to talk about something that's more pleasant? Well, Mark helps us. He helps us be reminded that there is an adversary to the work of God that was present then and is present now. Now, when we talk about Satan, there are two great temptations that we face. One is to minimize Satan. We, he turns into a cartoon character, got a little red pitchfork, tight red suit. He's got little horns. He becomes a Saturday Night Live character that we laugh at. Another equal, harmful option for us is to overemphasize Satan. He becomes someone that we must cower under. We, he becomes someone who we fear. We begin to find Satan and his demonic work around every stone of life, and we need to be reminded behind every alternator that goes out is not demonic activity. Behind every stomach bug that passes through your family is not demonic activity. We have two equal errors to make, to minimize or to maximize. C.S. Lewis in his great book called the screw tape letters he he pauses to to reflect on this very truth where he says there are two equal and, and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils one is to disbelieve in their existence the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them they themselves are equally pleased by both errors there's only two verses but there's much to ponder And in these two verses, we we ponder that there is an adversary that opposed God's work then and opposes God's work now. There is an enemy then that desired to thwart the work of God, and there is an enemy now who desires to thwart the work of God. There is an enemy then who desired to still kill and destroy, and there is an enemy now who desires to still kill and destroy. So what is our hope in the midst of of the adversary who dwells in our midst. What is the hope when there is an enemy who desires to subvert the plan of God? Our hope is in the one who withstood the adversary. Our hope is found not in you and not in me, but our hope is in looking to Jesus who withstood the temptation of Satan, which was a coming attraction. It was a, a preview of his crucifixion and his resurrection. It was a preview, a coming attractions of him coming back as the glorious king of kings and lord of lords in his second coming where he once and for all will conquer the foe, conquer the enemy, where we no longer face him and no longer can he subvert the work of God any longer. That is our destination. But until we get there, there is an enemy that desires to steal, kill, and destroy in your life and in my life. And God does. He did with His Son, and He does with us, allow us to go through the wilderness. But when he leads you through his spirit into the wilderness, be reminded that the same spirit that was with Jesus is the same spirit that dwells inside of you. The angelic messengers that minister to Jesus are the same angels that seek to minister to you in the face of any temptation that you might face. So we hold on to Jesus' half-brother's words in James chapter 4, verse 7, which reads, Submit yourselves, therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He is a foe, but church, he is a defeated foe. He is a foe, but he is a foe that is defeated by the one that we place our hope in, and so greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. This is the chief conflict of the kingdom. But also, in Mark chapter 1, we see the chief concern of the kingdom. the heels of Jesus's baptism right after his temptation we we are met with the chief message of the kingdom of God in verses 14 through 15 which reads now after John was arrested so there is opposition John is arrested. Jesus comes into Galilee, not Jerusalem, not the height of religious prestige and position and authority, but he goes to this out of the way place called Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. Unique phrase, gospel of God, used by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, unique in Mark's gospel. The gospel of God, you ask, what, Mark, is the gospel of God? Well, look at the quotes here. The time is fulfilled, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel now we know the gospel to be the message of jesus christ his life his ministry his death for your sins and my sins his resurrection his defeat of satan his defeat of death his defeat of anything that would separate you from god so so jesus comes and he's saying i'm here i'm the gospel what I've come to do is to set you free from an invading, conquering enemy. I'm the only one that can do it, and I'm here. Guess what? I've shown up on the scene. And so there's a clash of kingdoms, an earthly kingdom and an eternal kingdom that are clashing here, and Jesus gives us the gospel. The gospel is God's plan in Jesus that he has come in Mark chapter 1 to usher in. Two words. Gospel and kingdom, they're important. Gospel we find in verse 14. Gospel we find in verse 15. It's a word that means good news. Ewingelion is the word. It it is a word that had a background outside of the Gospels. It it wasn't a word that Mark invented. It wasn't a word that Matthew invented. You you have archaeologists that have given us inscriptions from the first century that say the Gospel of Caesar Augustus. The good news of a pagan king. Well, what was that? What was his birth? It was how he rose to prominence. How he was crowned as king. His his exploits as a king. The, The gospel was the good news of a king that had come. A pagan king. In that first century world, the, the gospel was the news of a, an army that had won. You, you have stories in that first century world of, of Greece being invaded by Persian, uh, G- Greece being able to, to fight off Persian conquerors and ultimately uh, send out heralds, send out evangelists to Sparta and to Athens to say what? Guess what? There was an invading army. We've held them bay. You are free. You're not a slave. We've won the battle. This is good news that we want to evangelize the whole kingdom with. And so the gospel, according to God of Jesus Christ, is the good news that in invaded territory, in a land where there is the prince of the air, the prince of darkness that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, there is one who has come that has defeated him. This is good news, not that you've done, nor I have done, but ultimately it is placing our faith in what Jesus has done to set us free from the powers of this world. So we have to have a response to this. You can't sit on the sidelines and say, well, that sounds good. No, it demands a response. Jesus tells us in verse 15, what is the response? Well, it's twofold. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Saving faith is a two-sided coin of repentance and belief. Repentance without belief is not saving faith. Belief without repentance is not saving faith. There is much that floats around in our evangelical world that exalts belief and minimizes repentance. Repentance is a word, metanoia, it means literally to change course, to turn around. It is a recognition that they are lowercase kingdoms that vie for our attention. That all of us desire to be the Lord of our own life. And so we must repent. We must turn from our pursuit to build our kingdom. And we must embrace We must embrace that the true king of kings has come, and we must give ourselves to him. It's not. Saving faith is not just intellectual, cognitive agreement with a set of theological truths. Jesus, the son of God, check. Jesus came to die for my sins, check. Jesus is coming back in second coming, check. Check, check, check. I'm a believer. Repentance and belief. Not just belief without repentance. Not just repentance without belief. They go hand in hand. And it's always dangerous when we preach easy believism or we preach repentance without the grace of God. We only can repent because of the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit that draws our hearts to this good news. And we see it when it goes astray. We need to note it when it goes astray. There's a story that's been floating around for decades of a gangster by the name of Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen was Al Capone's henchman. He he did his dirty work. He grew this mobster empire based out of Los Angeles. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, he, he really makes his mark in Los Angeles. In the late 40s, where he begins his crusades and his revivals, they're covered by all of the media. Thousands upon thousands go out to to see this, this evangelist. And so it's not surprising that some of the associates of Mickey Cohen, this mobster in Los Angeles, they go to the Billy Graham Crusades. They are saved. They come back to their mobster boss and say, you need to go hear this man. He relents. He's not persuaded. But they continue. They continue. His associates to to try to reel him in. Eventually, Mickey Cohen, this gangster mobster boss, agrees to go to New York City to hear Billy Graham preach. He walks the aisle. He believes in the gospel, and he is surrounded. He's prolific. People know of him. He's notorious, so he's surrounded by people, businessmen that are Christians, others that have an ear to him to begin to disciple him. They. Realize immediately that something's amiss. Mickey Cohen goes back to Los Angeles, continues his, his organized crime empire, doesn't relent whatsoever, continues full force in it. Eventually, after months, people sit him down and say, hold on, we thought you gave your heart to Jesus. We thought you are a believer. And he says, well, of course I am. And then they say, well, are you going to give up Your mobster ways. Are you going to give up the life of organized crime? And his reply to that is, what? You you mean that to be a follower of Jesus, I have to give up my profession? They're Christian athletes. They're Christian musicians. They're Christian businessmen. I thought that I could be a Christian gangster. (laughs) Belief, yes. Repentance, no. C- could you imagine getting married? Could you imagine putting down before your bride or groom to be this prenuptial agreement that had these words? When we get married, we will share the same house. And you will have access to all of this house, but I need you to sign on this dotted line that you are never to enter into these rooms. All of mine is yours except for this. All of our resources we will share together except for these resources that I will hold back. We are the bride of Christ. And when we trust him through repentance and belief, he demands all of our rooms. But how we're tempted, each and every one of us in this sanctuary, to say, Jesus, you can have all of me except for this room of my prejudices. You can have all of me except for this room of my habits. You can have all of me except for my desires. You can have all of me except for my finances. You can have all of me except for this room. that is a room of me. Repent and believe that the kingdom of God demands our all. Isaac Watts was this great 18th century hymn writer who wrote this wonderful hymn where he is basking in the glory of the cross of Christ Jesus. Words that many of you are familiar with where Watts says, When I survey the cross on which the Prince of Glory died, his sacrifice of love was so amazing, so divine that it demands our soul, our life, our life. And our all. Let us pray. Lord, today, anew and afresh, we repent of our desire to hold from you our life, our soul all There are none of us that have gathered here that are not tempted to reserve a room for self as a follower of you, Jesus. Today we confess that room that we so foolishly seek to hide from you. hold away from you. We repent. And we believe that your kingdom has come and you desire your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray your will be done in our life. We pray this in the name of your son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.